And now, with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved, here is Dr. James Houck. everybody wherever you are in the world at this time welcome to reclaiming authenticity finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always and underline that word always been in you very excited to be with you here this evening every other wednesday evening at 9 p.m eastern standard time 6 p.m pacific standard time and uh, each and every week these broadcasts focus on the integration of spirituality and our mental health, all within the context of our relationships, relationship that we have with ourselves, the relationship that we have with one another, and certainly the relationship that we have with God and or the divine. I am Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me, or if you want to leave me uh, any comments about today's show, please visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity that's all one word so www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity and uh just a reminder that these uh, broadcasts are now podcasted in case you want to go back and listen again you can go back into the archives and uh listen to previous shows just go back into the website and you'll be able to see you know where you click on to find the archives and um then you can just find the the date or the topic in which you would like to listen at your leisure and uh, if you would like to uh, call in and be part of tonight's show, I invite you to call the toll-free line. That's 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And give me your insights, your comments, your thoughts on tonight's subjects. It is like a pebble in our shoe. Well, for those of you who are new to the program, I always you know, have listeners turning in, tuning in for the very first time. I just want to say that I am a firm believer that all of us come into the world already equipped and graced with everything we need for in this life in terms of our giftedness, in terms of our skills, in terms of our talents, our strengths character traits, personalities, so on and so forth, the very, very best parts of ourselves. However, as we go along in life and maybe due to some unpleasant experiences where we find ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, we may tend to hide our giftedness or we feel that we need to push those skills way down so that others cannot see it and then perhaps exploit that or ridicule us or whatever it might be. Or perhaps maybe, you know, when you were growing up, you were told that you would never amount to anything or whatever other voice you heard telling you that there's nothing special to you. That is just straight up garbage. 
And at any rate, <clears throat> we do not realize our giftedness, shall we say. And we go through life functioning from a place of woundedness and victimization instead of from a place of healing and wholeness and embracing our hachayatas, this uniqueness. You see, hachayatas is a very important concept to understand for our lives. It is it is just so essential. Uh, for just as two people who have similar traits can do the same thing, they're going to do it differently due to their uniqueness or their thisness. And it's from this awareness of your own thisness that I believe you come to understand more fully your value, your dignity, and worth in and through relationships. And yet, it is so unfortunate that we often receive our deepest physical, emotional, psychological, even spiritual wounds in relationships. We're, we're social beings, okay? We cannot get around that. However, we can also discover our greatest healing, our greatest strength, our greatest peace, forgiveness, and love through healthier relationships when we discover and claim our thisness. And, you know, these relationships that I'm talking about here just might be within our own families or our coworkers and friends. But, you know, whenever we begin to transform and we are transforming, we're also going to transform others by our presence, our grace, our understanding, because we are different with ourselves and we're going to be different with them. We're going to be just different from, you know, uh, with our friends or just people we meet at random. We're going to act differently because we are different. But for first, forgiveness and kindness, compassion, they begin with how we see and treat ourselves. Because when we are compassionate with ourselves, I find that we can certainly become more compassionate with others. And when we are more forgiving of ourselves, we then can be more forgiving with others. Hence tonight's topic. And when we are able to live in gratitude with ourselves, we then discover how this opens up our hearts to see and live in gratitude with others. So all in all, transformation, first and foremost, begins with us, but it's also meant for the betterment of others, which brings us back to relationships. You know, one of my uh, favorite psychiatrists and the founder of person-centered therapy, Carl Rogers, uh, he once said that when the other person is hurting or confused or troubled or anxious, alienated, or terrified, or when he or she is doubtful of their self-worth or un uncertain as to identity, then understanding is called for, not ridicule understanding, and the gentle and sensitive companionship of an empathic stance provides illumination and healing. In other words, it's your presence, how you are with another person. Even if you don't have the words or if you're struggling to find the words, you know, don't force yourself because it's going to all come out wrong. But can you just be with another person in their hurt, their confusion? their trouble, their anxiety, their, them feeling alienated or terrified 
or whether or not they're, they're doubting their self-worth and so forth. So Rogers says, in such situations, deep understanding is, he believes, the most precious gift one can give to another. So how do we do this? Well, that's exactly what this show is all about, helping you discover how to reclaim that which has always been in you. So tonight, I'm going to be talking about a key aspect to helping us discover who we truly are through expressing and receiving forgiveness and gratitude. And I'll be sharing later on in the show that we can't separate gratitude from forgiveness. We can't force apart forgiveness from gratitude. The two actually go hand in hand. Well, welcome to the month of February. Here we are, February the 1st, and uh, depending on what the groundhog tells us tomorrow, <laughs> just, we're either in for it with uh, six more weeks of winter or spring's right around the corner. I don't know. I, I gave up a long time trying to predict what I think the groundhog is going to tell us. So uh, we'll just have to get up and, and tomorrow and just see and go and go from there. Okay, and then, yeah, we'll be at work or wherever we need to be that day, and just life will go on and, and so forth. But, you know, depending on what that groundhog says, you know, more and more people just might be inclined to get out and start walking, which is one of the best forms of exercise we can do, apart from, let's say, rock climbing, if you're into that, or surfing, or mountain biking, or whatever else you're into. And you know, we're going to have to wait till the summer months, you know, to do some of these things. But does anyone out there ever go for a walk in their bare feet? Yeah, you heard me correctly. Does anybody ever go outside and go for a walk in your bare feet? Or, okay, let me let me put it another way. Has anybody ever walked a pebble path? such as a labyrinth or another another path, in your bare feet? Has anyone ever walked a pebble path in your bare feet? And for people who are not used to walking on this kind of a surface, it can be uncomfortable and painful at first. But after a while, the smooth stones massage and stimulate the acupressure points on the soles of the feet. And when I, uh, one year when I was in India at one of the ashrams, uh, they had one of these pebble pads. It was just a simple nine by nine. You just walked in a square and it's probably like a foot and a half, two feet in, you know, width. And, um, it had all the benefits of, uh, reflexology and explained it and everything. And so it was during, yeah, warmer time of the year. So I took my shoes off and in my bare feet, I start walking on these stones, these smooth stones. And I might have taken maybe three or four steps and I was crying. Uh, I just couldn't take it. It was just hurting my feet so much. But the more I kept doing it, the more my feet got used to it. And I started to look forward to it because those, um, those stones actually started to massage and stimulate the acupressure points on the sole of my feet. So, you know, interesting with reflexology, you know, these uh, acupressure points are connected to various energy meridians of the body. And the feet are a microcosm of the body. Uh, all the organs, glands, and body parts are represented by reflexes. In a similar arrangement, 
on the feet. I mean, you can just look this up in Google. They have pictures and everything. It's really cool stuff. And uh, their locations and relationships to each other on the feet follow this logical uh, anatomical pattern, which closely resembles that of the body itself. You know, you have the lungs, you have the liver, you know, so forth, all the internal organs. And this is also the reason I'm sure why people feel more relaxed after a foot massage. Okay, now I, I, don't, I can't help you if you're ticklish, but uh, for people out there who have gotten, you know, wonderful foot massages, they are so relaxed and it just seems to open up just a clarity of thought. Uh, people have actually reported that uh, a lot of their dreams have to become more vivid, that they can remember them and so forth. So I highly recommend, uh, what's today, Wednesday, that uh, maybe this weekend you schedule a time to, uh, to get a good foot massage, or if you can find one of these uh, pebble pads out there. I think I even seen them, that uh, you can order them. Uh, you, can, you can buy squares that are probably like two by two, you know, two foot by two foot, no pun intended. And you can just put them in, you know, your office or you want to put that in your living room or somewhere and then just take your shoes off and in your bare feet, just stand all that, stand on those uh, squares, I should say, and uh, just move around and shift your weight and just allow those stones to start massaging. Um, it's, it's just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So, um, let's see, but most people I know enjoy a good long walk or hike through the woods, whether or not they're taking off their shoes. Okay. And, uh, you, maybe you're like me, you know, no matter whether you're on a trail or a back road sooner or later, sometimes you're going to pick up a pebble in your shoe. Okay. Just something very small, but you know, it's there and how it got in your shoe. We don't know. It, it just happened. You know, how do we pick up stuff? Who knows? But, but think about it. You know, you're moving along at a good pace, you know, peaceful, hopefully no pain in your hips or knees. When all of a sudden you feel a pain on the bottom of your foot and you realize somehow you've picked up a stone or a pebble. Uh, now, okay. You know, follow me on this your first thought might be to ignore it. After all, it's just a pebble, right? It, it might be an annoyance that you can tolerate. And, you know, let's be honest here. You really don't want to stop and take off your shoe, you know, untie your shoe and, and uh, turn it upside down and get rid of the pebble and then put it back on and retie your shoe. You know, so you just, you just keep going. You tell yourself, I got this. I can handle this. This is no big deal. I'll just, uh, as I continue on, I'll just start to shake my foot to shift the pebble to another area under your foot or maybe to the side of the shoe that you can tolerate for now. Now, the pebble obviously is still in your shoe, but you've taken some action to minimize the pain you feel, or so you think. But over time, and the more steps you take, the pain begins to intensify. And if you start to get a blister and it pops, you might even bleed into your sock, depending, you know, because of where the pebble had been rubbing. And then you got problems. Then you got to definitely stop, get the stone out and head home and put a Band-Aid on it, clean it out, all that, you, you know, good home care, first aid 
And when we can no longer tolerate the pain and can no longer keep shifting the pebble back and forth, again, you know, we just like, I can't take this anymore and I have to take the shoe off and get rid of it. But let's stay with this pebble as this metaphor for something far greater than just simply a pain in the foot. Because isn't it amazing what kind of bigger lesson a little pebble in the shoe can teach us? You see, what if we begin to see everything in our lives as a metaphor, such as a physical pain just might teach us something about our mental, emotional, or spiritual pain? You see, a pebble in the shoe, if we are paying attention, just might awaken us to something else we need to take care of in our lives, such as a lack of forgiveness or a lack of gratitude. In fact, the pebble just might be there to remind us of something far more painful for us that nobody else knows about, because we're not carrying it in the shoe. We're carrying it in our hearts. And, you know, for that matter, what about the emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual pain of others? See, this pebble in the shoe or unforgiveness or lack of gratitude also has a way to enhance empathy in us for another whose pain is quite real for them, but perhaps nobody else knows about it. Muhammad Ali once said, uh, it isn't the mountains ahead to climb that wears you out. It's this pebble in your shoe. I mean, that was advice from a man that achieved greatness in the ring, but only after overcoming many challenges. You know, growing up as a young black man in an era that was just riddled with racial discrimination. And another way to look at what forgiveness entails can come as a shock to many. And it's this, that forgiveness very much has to do with ourselves. It's about self-healing, self-empowerment, self-liberation. As uh, Desmond Tutu, South Africa's former Anglican Archbishop and a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, he once said, uh, we don't forgive to help the other person. We don't forgive for others. We forgive for ourselves. Forgiveness, in other words, is the best form of self-interest. I would round out that quote a little bit more, but I see where he's coming from. Because when we forgive, we do feel better. Because we're not carrying that weight anymore. We don't have that pebble in the shoe, so to speak came across an interesting article last week where, according to a survey by the Fetzer Institute, 62% of Americans think that they need more forgiveness in their personal lives. 62%. But how do people go about finding forgiveness, let alone walking in a continual state of forgiveness? That I have been forgiven. But now, how do I live that out? What does that look like? And, you know, it goes way beyond a simple nine to five. Well, in the book, The Spirituality of Imperfection, uh, the authors, Ernest Kurtz and Elizabeth Ketchum, 
they actually defined forgiveness as letting go of the feeling of resentment and seeing yourself as a victim, letting all that go. It's, as they say, it's a readiness to accept one's own accountability instead of blaming his or her problems on somebody else. And then you start to clean yourself up. Not bad. Then forgiveness and healing occurs not only by God, but also even of God. This can certainly take place. But you know, there's still a persistent belief out there that acts like a pebble in the shoe, whereby if left untreated, so to speak, it keeps us right there becoming more resentful and keeps us right there being a victim. So what are you saying? I get hurt and you want me to forgive the offender? I'm the one who got hurt. The offender should do something for me. Can you hear it? You see, this kind of thinking traps victims in their pain, and, and it really doesn't offer any plausible solution, especially if offenders don't realize that they did something wrong, or even if they do, they just don't feel like making amends. You know, the situation seems intractable, and but locks victims into a space filled with hurt. And therefore, carrying this hurt can be a burden to certainly social, physical, and mental well-being. It will affect our relationships, guaranteed. And yet, forgiveness eases this, and not surprisingly, is linked to improved health and quality of life. That's the other half of the Fetzer group. Uh, you know, where you know, sixty percent of, of people want more forgiveness in their lives, and and certainly forgiveness has been something that's been measured to when it finally occurs, is linked to one's overall health and quality of life, and just making huge leaps and bounds in terms of uh, improvement. But you know, the most commonly accepted approach to understanding forgiveness from, like, say, a physiological standpoint, this health connection, um, uh, it, it invokes a, you know, just, oh gosh, going back decades and decades and decades of this notion of how we cope with stress. Again, I, I read another article, uh, this time by Lazarus and Folkman, who described the connections between our perceptions of stress our coping resources, and certainly our health consequences. In other words, we all deal with stress. We all have resources to cope with it. It could be exercise. It could be sleeping more. Some people run and grab junk food or whatever it is. And what's the outcome of those kinds of behaviors of how we are dealing with our stress? Well, in a nutshell, <clears throat> this theory suggests that when we perceive something in our world, that poses a threat or potential harm or a significant challenge, yeah, we're going to feel stress. And the stress that we experience impacts all levels of our functioning behavior in the world. And it affects us emotionally and, and our biological responses that, you know, when these continue over time, when they're, let's say, chronic, it's going to ultimately erode our health. Because bitterness and unforgiveness certainly eats away at our resiliency and our internal organs and mental health, let alone our relationships. 
But have you ever noticed how unforgiveness and a lack of gratitude and resentment are often featured in a very lonely person? I had this conversation with a couple of clients uh, earlier this week, you know, and just this correlation here of uh, the importance of forgiveness. And, you know, but if when you don't have forgiveness or there's a lack of gratitude or resentment, you know, nine times out of 10, <clears throat> the person who does not have these things is often a very lonely person as well. Many people end up in these sad situations. But you know, you know, people's beliefs about forgiveness or even their beliefs about religion and spirituality actually may hinder their ability to forgive. Okay, and this sounds odd because all religions and spirituality seem to place forgiveness and gratitude as part of its foundational belief system. You know, I'm just convinced of it. Just go to any kind of religion and there has to be some means of reconciliation. Of, of relationships that have been strained or there's hurt or making amends or something. And so forgiveness and gratitude are very much ingrained in the teachings. And yet the concept of forgiveness can really be incorporated into multiple beliefs. So, you know, a lot of people really don't know what that's going to look like as a means of connecting forgiveness to their belief systems. Right? And this is a very important question. I, I'm, I'm, you know, this one just made me stop and think about this. Very important question, because although people want to forgive, and they want to be forgiven, many people struggle with how forgiveness would transform their relationships from what they presently know now, as well as how forgiveness requires them to take on more responsibilities in how they live their lives. Want me to say that again? Okay. Even though people want to forgive and they want they want to be forgiven, many people struggle with how forgiveness is going to transform their relationships from what they presently know, as well as how forgiveness is now going to require them to take on more responsibilities in how they live their lives. And think about that. I'll just I'll just leave that right there. You can ponder that and you know, uh, just try to make connections with that in, in your lives. But uh, some people shy away from forgiveness, be, for, from forgiveness, I should say, because they recognize that, ooh, if I, if I forgive that person, now what? I have to give up how I've been treating them. I have to give up other things that I've been hanging on to that have been very detrimental. But now what? Now what would I be called to do? You see where the responsibility comes in? And, you know, other people are resistant to forgiving for reasons that have little to do with religion or spirituality. Because people often believe that forgiveness is relational. They may assume that forgiving someone is equivalent to pardoning the offender, let's say, or condoning the offense that injured them. In other words, letting the person go scot-free. So certainly looking at forgiveness as a process appears to be more appealing to others, especially since they may not be able to conceive the thought of, let's say, total forgiveness. Maybe a person, you know, today is at 40% forgiveness, whatever the offense was, 
you know. But the real question would be then what would need to shift in order for them or for us, let's say, move to 45% forgiveness or even 50% forgiveness. And so seeing forgiveness as a process incrementally, if you're really struggling with this whole concept of total forgiveness, you know, maybe it's wiser to move towards forgiveness, you know, integrate, where's the hurt? What do I need to let go of? And so on and so forth. How do I have to change my thinking and all that? So let's return to this pebble in the shoe theme. And, um, you know, again, let's let's consider the fact that the pebble in the shoe is a, really a metaphor for something far greater than a pain in the foot. Okay, uh, it could just very well be a greater lesson for us. You know, it, it, it has a, also a way to enhance empathy in us for another. Um, but let's say that some of these lessons include that, you know, look, always deal with your problems immediately. And if you hold on to problems such as anger and bitterness and forgiveness, eh, sooner or later, you're going to have problems. But let's go deeper. The real issue, why we don't want to forgive, perhaps, is that we want to keep ourselves protected from further wounding. I mean, we don't want to let our guard down and be hurt all over again. Well, this past week, I've had some pretty interesting conversations with kids, teenagers, about forgiveness. And, you know, this this conversation is, you know, whatever it was, whoever it was with, seemed to all center on, of course, video games. You know, what, what kid doesn't play video games? So it's like, oh, okay, what have you been playing this week? Tell me about it. What's going on? And unfortunately, many times video games are not seen as ways to teach kids about the real lessons in life. But everything is a teachable moment for us and for others. For instance, in the video game, you know, you're trying to reach an end goal. Okay, whether it's getting to a finish line, reaching a top of a mountain, or trying to find a hidden treasure. And most of the time, it's going to take several attempts to succeed. Or, in other words, no one person playing the game has ever reached the goal of the game without making a few mistakes along the way and then having to start over. And therein lies life's lessons about forgiveness. When we forgive or when we ask another for forgiveness, it's like we've been given another chance to start over with ourselves, with others, even with God. Forgiveness allows us to re-enter society a little bit wiser, more engaged in living in gratitude, because we know how much we have been forgiven of. Well, as I said at the beginning, I really would love to hear what's on your heart about all of this. So if you would like to call in, the number is 888-627-6008, and I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. I'll be back with you in one minute.
Well, earlier in the show, <clears throat> excuse me, I should have taken more of sips of water. Earlier in the show, I was talking about unforgiveness and ungratefulness being similar to having a pebble in our shoes. Okay. Uh, and we can apply this same analogy or metaphor to our, our lives, especially when it comes to forgiveness and gratitude. And kind of, it's kind of ironic here because most of the time society wants to treat these themes as separate and individual. And yet, when it comes to integrating our spirituality and our mental health, forgiveness and gratitude can never be separated. Well, you know, let's be honest, we could try to make this out to be a which came first chicken egg kind of dilemma. But in all actuality, I've never met a person who didn't express gratitude in all that they say and do without also having forgiveness in their heart. So if you want to think of it this way, forgiveness and gratitude go hand in hand, just like peanut butter and jelly or peas and carrots. Because when we both have forgiveness and gratitude, as I said, it opens up the heart like nothing else in our lives and allows this authentic love of ourselves and others to emerge. But how often are we content to keep walking with this pebble in our shoe? How often, how many years, days, weeks, months, years, decades, are we content to walk in unforgiveness? Lack of gratitude. How often are we content to keep walking with these pebbles in our shoe, knowing that with each step we take, the pain keeps shooting through our feet and eventually up our legs and and so forth. So how do we go about cultivating forgiveness, gratitude, and love? Well, it's easier than what we think. You know, you have to begin with often the most difficult people you may ever encounter, your family. Forgiveness and gratitude must begin with our families because this is often where we've experienced some of the most pain and hurt in our lives, psychological, emotional, physical, even spiritual pain. We have to begin with our families or, or, you know, origin issues, because these are the first people who gave us a sense of how the world works. But for the sake of argument, I just would like us to expand our definition of family to include not just immediate and extended family members, but also the family members that have gone on before us, as well as those who will come after us, you know, those who have yet to be born. Well, Murray Bowen uh, is a family systems theorist, and he suggests that a person cannot be fully understood in isolation. That is, we cannot understand them apart from the greater context of their family, their community, their culture, and the world. And yet, within these larger systems, people often struggle to differentiate themselves and to be guided by their own thoughts, feelings, and actions. See, I had conversations with many a young adult who's just anxious to get out there on their own to make their own peanut butter and jelly sandwich in their own apartment with their own bread at any time they darn well please. And yet, when they go home, so to speak, 
for holidays, birthdays, whatever, they're made to feel as, yes, you're part of this family, but don't ever forget where you came from. And immediately that individuality, that, that differentiation of I have value, dignity, and I have my own worth gets swallowed up. So in other words, although individuals desire to think and live for themselves, you know, such as developing creative and critical thinking skills, they're often certainly drawn back into the prevailing and often codependent emotional patterns that characterize families, cultures, and societies. Okay, and I'm not bashing families. I'm just saying there's just a lot of things that need to be healed. But still, if we're honest with ourselves, we may live in a part of the world where society's definition of this differentiation is a mixed message. Because you see, on one hand, differentiation is often taken to the extreme, as we're told, to look out for number one, be an individual, walk to the beat of our own drum, even at the expense of others if necessary. And yet, on the other hand, there are times when we also are expected to go with the flow, don't make waves, fall in line with the status quo. And if these mixed messages are confusing, we're not alone. All we have to do is examine the history of systems in order to understand the violent and oppressive patterns against people who didn't conform to the wishes of others. And you don't have to go back too far, but if you want to go all the way back, you know, you're going to see a very ugly, horrific pattern. And for those of you who have been listening to me for some time, you know that I'm all about ancestral healing. How do we heal the those who have gone on before us? How do we heal ourselves? And in doing so, we heal by preventing... Um, let's see, maladaptive patterns or problems or codependency from going forward. And so we can certainly heal those who have yet to be born because as we change, everything else changes. So again, when thinking of ancestral healing, we might be hesitant to begin this process because we still hold a tremendous amount of our own bitterness, rage, and contempt against those who committed, let's say, physical, emotional sexual abuse against us or our families. In fact, as you flip through the family album or you flip through your phone and you see the pictures, we may discover that they're not always filled with pleasant memories. Instead, these pages may be filled with more memories of abuse and control and oppression and cruelty. But nevertheless, when we realize that we can be the transitional generation that no longer has to carry such wounds, then our ancestors no longer have to carry them either. Indeed, we all possess inner strengths, resources, and gifts to make this happen. Don't, don't say, what can I do? There's nothing I can do. I have, I have nothing. That's, that's not true. Remember, you've come into this world with everything you already need. Who you are, 
your thisness, the hachetas, and the very fact that you are soul. Wounded people wound people. This intergenerational trauma attests to this. However, people who live their lives in forgiveness, gratitude, and love transform generations. And discovering the power of, you know, our soul's voice is a tremendous catalyst for change. See, true forgiveness goes one step further, offering something positive. Empathy, compassion, understanding toward the person or persons who hurt you. True forgiveness goes one step further, offering something positive, such as empathy, compassion, and understanding toward the person who hurt you. For me, I believe the impact of healing intergenerational trauma can be best understood as a starburst or a sparkler. This is how I explain it to kids. You know, much like the sparklers, children light on the 4th of July. Yeah, we're a few months away. You get the point. As one person heals from trauma, this this light, this energy radiates out in all directions, cutting across directions, time, and all dimensions, all space. All relationships act the same way. Regardless of time and space, all relationships then are transformed. This is how interconnected we are as human beings in the world in which we live. Just imagine, just, just imagine for a second how a single negative thought carries enough destructive energy to affect hundreds, if not thousands of people each day. Now, imagine that same potential a single positive thought has. See the difference? I once worked with a family. In fact, I was working with a 15-year-old high school student. Let's just call her Kayla. Okay, it's a pseudoname. And uh, Kayla was acting out in school. And, of course, you know, Kayla was sent to me, and you know, by the parents. And, you know, I got the usual, here, fix my kid kind of expectation. And just a little background on, on Kayla. She was, uh, she went from being a straight-A student to getting C's in, you know, in the course of a semester. And uh, Kayla started experimenting with various drugs, and her friends and family noticed significant behavioral changes in her, which is very common. Uh, she became more irritable, hostile, uninterested in normal teenage activities. And she was diagnosed with major depression, assessed for suicide ideation, and then she was prescribed an antidepressant medication just to take the edge off for her. Uh, now, instead of treating her individually, uh, Kayla actually agreed to family therapy that also included her mother and grandmother. And I was surprised by this. I was just thinking like, okay, she's not going to agree to this because, you know, she just wants to work on stuff herself. But she's like, I don't care. So at the first meeting, I, I set the ground rules for therapy, explaining that we were there not to place blame on anyone, but to help Kayla get better. Now, to get an accurate history of the family, I, I started to draw this genogram, which is a, a visual representation of, let's say, multi-generational family tree that focuses on the relationships within the different family members. 
and I had a dry erase board in my office, so it was easy to do. And as the names of cousins and aunts and uncles and significant family events filled up the board, I certainly explained how emotional and behavioral patterns are not only mirrored, but also handed down through the generations. Think of it in terms of, um, let's say, heart disease, diabetes, or something like that. Uh, these things are handed down through the generations. So is mental health issues. So is good work ethics. So are everything, as if we want to label them positive, negative, good, bad, whatever, it all comes down through the generations. And this is why people have a predisposition to certain things. Well, immediately, the metaphorical dots, let's just say, started to connect for Kayla and her mother as the stories from Kayla's grandmother filled in the details from her perspective. Like, you know, if you want to know the truth about any family, you talk to grandma. Okay, grandfathers, they just sit there and just BS their way through like, well, I remember when, you know, but you want the truth. Talk to grandma. Okay, and she explained how she was raised by her mother and her grandmother and what it was lo grow like growing up in her day. She shared how men and women were treated differently and lived with different social and religious expectations and why jobs were scarce at times. And grandma also shared why so-and-so had extramarital affairs and so-and-so who struggled with excessive drinking, and even the reason why a certain family member had to move away. Like I said, you want to know family history, you talk to grandma. Now, all of a sudden, there were five generations in the room with us, as it appeared that the ground rules for therapy gave Kayla's grandmother permission to talk about the family secrets. And interesting, even now and then, I noticed how Kayla's body language went from sitting with her, her head in her hands to carefully listening to her grandmother's stories. She had never heard these before. You know, I could see in Kayla's eyes that she was starting to understand that, you know what, I'm not crazy, I'm not lazy, I'm not stupid, I'm not ugly, or any other negative belief that she started to tell herself. And as we talked over the next few weeks, this genogram that I continued to draw depicted generations of socioeconomic struggles, alcohol dependence, family attitudes around guilt and shame, and grandma's one big secret, her abortion at age 19. Through her tears, Grandma confessed that she had been carrying the guilt and the shame of her abortion for decades. In fact, every now and then, Grandma said how she could hear her baby's cries in her dreams and how that haunts her. And although abortion was illegal back in her day, Grandma said that she had the abortion anyway in order to spare her family shame at that time of having a child out of wedlock. And she also shared how she wanted to tell her husband many times, but still feared being shunned and told to leave. And immediately, Kayla burst into tears as she, too, 
confess that before last semester, she became pregnant and she had an abortion. She, too, could not bear shaming the family with this unplanned pregnancy, since they had so many high hopes for her. And all at once, it seemed like the emotional floodgates were opened as three generations of women sat there and sobbed in each other's arms. The relief from carrying these secrets was obvious in both grandmother and granddaughter. And although Kayla's mother had no idea of these secrets, she too realized that for generations who did not believe in airing their dirty laundry, suffering in silence is a horrible burden to bear. In the weeks that followed, Kayla, her mother, and her grandmother continued to talk through generational struggles and unspoken lessons that characterized their family. Kayla and her grandmother even wrote letters of forgiveness to the children they aborted. Grandma also brought in some old photos, which then added flesh and blood and soul to the stories. And themes of forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you continued to empower these women to not only heal generations long since past, but also to impart their hopes and dreams for generations yet to be born. See, in creating a living dialogue with our ancestors, remember that our sole connection with them is not about placing blame. It's not about finding fault for wounds suffered from, say, the intergenerational trauma. Instead, it's a dialogue. It's a conversation. It's a soul-to-soul connection intended to create an ongoing opportunity for healing and reconciliation, as well as stopping the harmful psychological, emotional, spiritual patterns from being passed on to generations who have yet to be born. You know, being the transitional generation, therefore, requires us to stand in the gap, as it were, and offer this forgiveness, release, and gratitude, not just for ourselves, but also for all family members, regardless of whether or not they were perpetrators, whether or not they were victims. For example, I have friends who you know, had do intergenerational trauma healing, and they set their intention to heal intergenerational trauma from the perspective of the unborn generations. And much like going back seven generations to heal the souls that are stuck, let's say, due to trauma in that traumatic energy, they place themselves in the role or the voice of seven generations into the future. It's fascinating to watch. Still, many people ask me, how do you even heal intergenerational trauma when you don't even know your present family, let alone how do you connect with your ancestors and those who have yet to be born? Well, the answer is that religious and social ceremonies and rituals bring us back into the spiritual, psychological, emotional, and physical alignment or awareness with God, ourselves, and our relations. No matter what nationality, race, ethnicity, or region we are from, every culture, has their own unique celebrations. 
and many ceremonies mark transitions in our lives, such as graduations, weddings, and funerals, just to name a few. And others are more seasonal, such as they follow a yearly observance, such as birthdays or anniversaries, holidays, solstices, celebrations, and so forth. And regardless of when a particular ceremony is observed, or whether or not people feel connected to their community, there's always this universal teaching, often hidden in the rituals themselves that can be applied to all of humanity. Well, how many out there in internet radio land have ever tied a braid? A braid, B-R-A-I-D. Have you ever braided a hair? Or braided hair, I should say. Um, maybe you've braided ribbons for a little flare on packages or decorations, or maybe you tied your hair in a braid or some other loose strands. Either way, you know that braiding makes something stronger because of intertwining of the fibers or strands. Well, I was at the hardware store uh, last week and I was buying some rope. And of course, you go down the aisle where they have the rope and there's all kinds of thickness and lengths and, you know, textures and all that. And I stopped and I looked at some of the heavier, thicker ropes that they had. And you know what? I discovered that the strength of the rope was in the weaving or the braiding of other ropes, which, of course, in the end, made it very, very strong. I want to share with you a meditation that came across my desk just a couple of days ago. It is from uh, Marty Stomping Elk uh, from Lakota Creations, and it talks about the braiding of sweetgrass. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can Google it. You'll see, just type in braided sweetgrass or just sweetgrass, and you'll see it braided uh, much like way a girl would braid pigtails or a ponytail. Okay, <clears throat> but there is certainly a, a strong, strong significance in braiding sweetgrass and then burning it, you know, through prayers or even just giving braided sweetgrass as a gift. And um, Marty writes, the elders tell us that it takes longer for us to heal today. The reason is because the old trails our ancestors used to find have been destroyed. So now our ancestors are having a hard time finding us to help us heal. Okay? But when we burn sweetgrass, remember these things. It's a kindness medicine with a sweet, gentle aroma when we light it. It's very symbolic. There are 21 strands used to make a braid. The first seven strands represent those seven generations behind us, our grandparents, our parents, our great-grandparents, and so on. Seven generations behind us, who we are and what we are is because of them. They've brushed and made the trails we've been walking on up till now. But the trails have been destroyed. We've lost our connection. The time has come to heal and reconnect with those who have come before us. The next seven strands represent the seven sacred teachings. Love, respect, honesty, courage, wisdom, truth, and humility. The elders tell us how simple and powerful and beautiful these teachings are. Love. Unconditional affection with no limits or conditions that starts with loving yourself. And courage, bravery, 
permitting one to face extreme dangers with boldness, withstanding danger, fear, or difficulty, and so on, and so on, and so on. The last seven strands are those of the seven generations in front of us, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and so forth, as well as those who children yet to be born. It is important because everything we do to Mother Earth will one day affect them. When we have lost our way, Mother Earth gives us everything we need to heal ourselves and the Earth. And therefore, we have to go back to our roots and we bloom. And the way we do this, everybody, is through forgiveness, expressing gratitude, and living in love. You've been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I'm Dr. James Houck, and I thank you for spending this hour with me. Be with me in two weeks, uh, same time, Wednesday uh, at 9 o'clock. That would be the 15th. And so I just invite you to be well, be safe, and by all means, behave yourselves. Take care. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding around to buy a book by Dr. Hauk. It's all there. Just wander over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific, on BBS Radio TV.